This is, as I said, our fourth and our final lecture in Covenant Renewal. And as it is, I would encourage you one more time uh, just to keep this handy. Uh, we will be looking at this copy of the Covenant uh, rather frequently, more frequently this evening than we have in the lectures beforehand. What I want us to do um, as we begin here is to review briefly some of the basic principles that we've taken up thus far. And so first of all, we see here that a corporate body as a body, is obliged to and judged by the moral law, which, of course, we refer to, again, as this idea of a corporate moral person. This is how God deals with us, and this is how we're supposed to look at ourselves as we're joined together in any kind of union or corporation. Secondly, we saw here that an action is considered corporate when something is done by either the generality of its members or the body's representatives or done with the permission, in whatever sentence, given by the generality of the body. And then fourthly and finally, as we took up last Lord's Day afternoon, the historical aspects of the covenant that we're renewing this evening, we found there that in the covenant's National and Solid League, our forebears engaged faithfully in the duty of corporate religious covenanting by pledging themselves as nations to be the Lord's and employed in Christ's service. Now, thus far, that is really all that we've covered up to this point. But as we take on the subject of covenant renewal itself, as a subject in its own right, I think it's fitting for us to go back and ask a very basic question about our exegetical principles. That is, how is it that we are using the scriptures as we seek to understand this duty? And the first thing that I want us to say is, as we looked at this now two Lord's Days ago, We saw here that every component of covenanting is something that we find both in the Old and in the New Covenant. Often evangelicals, as you know, many Christians believe that covenanting, swearing and making oaths or vows to God, those things belong to the Old Covenant administration only. But as we saw through the example of the New Testament, these things are part of both Testaments quite clearly. And so that shows us here, friend, that covenanting is not peculiar to Israel of old. Um, Though, in one sense, as we'll see in just a moment's time, their aspect or their engagement in covenanting did have peculiar features to it. Now, if those are our two principles as we're looking at the scriptures, there are a couple of questions we can't ask. Well, the first question being, what are the similarities, then, that obtain between us as we seek to engage in this duty and those of the old? And first of all, I will take that. What what is really these similarities between Old Testament Israel, their engagement in covenanting, and what we're doing this evening? First of all, friend, I want you to notice that in both cases, covenanting was entered into via or through the covenant of grace. That is true in the Old Covenant administration as much as it is true in the New Covenant. Let me put it to you this way. Moses, says the writer of the Hebrews, verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which were spoken to be, which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are. The striking there is the writer of the Hebrews has in view one house. One house in which Moses was a servant. One house, that same house over which Christ is a son. And then the apostle goes on to tell us this. That house is that which we, as we stand in union with Christ, 
is that which we belong to. And so, friend, as we're looking at covenanting, we can't miss that in both cases, whether under the Mosaic administration or under the new, we are entering into the covenant of grace. We are renewing it in this sense. It is only through the covenant of grace that corporate religious covenanting is appropriate. But the second thing that I want you to notice too, friend, in terms of similarities is, you have here in the Old Testament Israel functioning as a nation. This is an aspect that is largely contested by many exegetes today, but we can't miss this. You remember what the Lord says to Abraham, Thou shalt be a father of many nations. You remember, of course, through Isaac, that Israel will come. But you remember also, of course, the nations that would be born through Ishmael. Remember even the nations that would be born through Ketua, Abraham's second wife. The idea is, Israel is a nation. Yes, she has a typological function, but she has all of the essential components of a nation, because that is what she was called to be. Uh, we can't miss this, and I'm belaboring this point just briefly, because many people want to make the immediate correlation between the church and Israel of old, as though Israel had no national or political context that we can draw from. Israel was called to be a nation, and certainly that she was. And so she was considered, as we saw just uh, now three Lord's days ago, she's treated as a corporate moral person by God. And like other nations, what you see here also in Israel is that there is a division between sacred or what we might call secular powers. The king does not have the authority to offer sacrifice. He does not have the right to usurp over the priestly office. There is a division of powers even within the kingdom. There is a kingly and a spiritual power there in the nation. And even what's striking is you look at Israel as a nation here, you find even another, another fundamental aspect, and that is that even David, who is anointed by the prophet of God to be the rightful heir to the throne after Saul, note how he comes into his kingship. It is only after the king, after the kingdom of Judah, acquiesces in his kingship, and even after that, only after the ten northern tribes acquiesce in the same kingship. In other words, friend, what you have here is that David himself, like all of the other rulers, must be chosen by those whom he rules. I'm saying this, friend, because we can't miss that here Israel stands in these fundamental aspects like any other nation. But thirdly, as we look at this, friend, we can't also miss either that here you have Israel engaged in covenanting. And I'm saying immediately that this is something that is not peculiar to Israel as a nation. And I say that for a few very basic reasons. First of all, covenanting itself belongs to all of those who have God to be their God. Note what the Lord says here. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. That is a promise. Every tongue, not merely Israelites, but every tongue shall swear. Then note this. And you, as you come to Isaiah 65, in the anticipation of the millennium, he writes thus, He who blessed himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And note, And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. What you see here in this text, friend, is the idea that the prophet is very much anticipating that moment, when the nations of the earth, not just Israel herself, will swear by the name of the Lord, Jehovah. You also see this in the context of vowing. Praise waited for thee, O God, and sighed, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. That, of course, is looking not just to one particular aspect, 
but to all of those who would be part of that spiritual Zion. The Lord shall be known in Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Now note this. We're speaking here not of Israel. We're not here thinking of Judah. We're not here thinking of the ten northern tribes. Note what the prophet goes on to say. These Egyptians shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And why is that? The prophet goes on to tell us. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. You have the same thing as God looks toward the engrafting again, the Jews. He writes this in his prophecy that we'll take up this evening, God willing. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces to the word, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. That's Jeremiah 50, verse 5. And what you find here, friend, what's common to all of these things, is that this is a duty that belongs to any and to all, whether Israelite or Egyptian or Assyrian, who would have the Lord as their God. And so writes the scriptures, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and know this, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. You who cleave to the Lord, this duty of covenanting belongs to you as much as it belonged to Israel of old. If you cleave to the Lord, if you claim Jehovah as your God, the scriptures make no amendation no, no in the new covenant. There is no change in the new covenant. The obligation is, as it says here, we are to swear by his name. The command is still, vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Psalm 76, 11. And so accordingly, as we look in the New Testament directions, how to do this right, we find examples. We find examples again, as we saw two Lord's days ago now, of the Apostle Paul engaging both in swearing and in making vows to God. We find this also in the case of the Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians 8. And we can find this elsewhere throughout the New Testament. This is a duty that belongs to both administrations of the covenant of grace. What is not unique to us is that this duty remains for the people of God. There are peculiarities, and just briefly I'll put it to you this way. Israel, of course, was privileged with the light of Scripture more than just any other nation at that time. Israel was privileged with more than the light of nature, though the latter, the light of nature, would would acquiesce in the lawfulness of the light of Scripture. It takes, I think, just a moment here to, to unpack that. What the scriptures teach us here is that Israel was unique in that God had chosen to depose, to, to dispose rather his word within them. He gave Israel, he gave Jacob his word when other nations were passed by. My friend, as you look at that, what you find here is this wonderful statement in the Psalms. He showed his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. And this he writes, he hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they had not known them. In the old covenant administration, Israel was unique in this. She was sent the prophets. She was sent the word of God. And what's striking as you look at Deuteronomy 4, as Moses, writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, talks about the nations looking at his law, he writes this. This law is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. Nations dark. Nations only possess that dim light of nature. He writes this. Which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. For what nation is so great who hath God so nigh unto them, 
as the Lord their God is in all things that we call upon Him for. And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as in all this law, which I set before you this day? That is the peculiarity that belongs to the Old Covenant administration. Israel, to the exclusion of the other Gentile nations, was given the Scriptures. That if the light of nature would behold these things, they would be envious of that which Israel was given. But also we can't miss too that this, that this people, the Israel of old, they were under the old covenant administration. Now what we mean here is not that they were under a different covenant. Uh, many people misread Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews as well to say that there is a whole different covenant. But as you look at the text, even the text that we read from the epistle of Hebrew, to the Hebrews chapter 3, you find here that that's not how the New Testament writers treat this. There is one house in which Moses lived, and over that house Christ is the Son. And as we are united in Christ, we are part of that house. And there are many other texts that we can go to. But the point is, though it is same in substance, that covenant of grace, that is in the old covenant as in the new, we can't miss, and this is so crucial, that there is a difference in terms of maturity. And so the Apostle writes thus, In the Old Testament, the church was under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. In other words, as he writes this a little before, she was under a schoolmaster. In other words, she was in a state of being underage, as the Confession of Faith puts it. And so what we have here is a covenant that is same in substance, but different in maturity, to use the Apostle's analogy. And so when we look at covenanting in the Scriptures, we can't miss that there will be aspects of covenanting that are peculiar to Israel's place, if you will, her maturity. So you'll find in in covenanting in the Old Testament references to Old Testament worship, government, etc. Those things being unique to the administration of the covenant grace in which she found herself. But that doesn't change the fact, as we close here, that all of the essential aspects of covenanting, namely those predicated upon the covenant of grace, oaths and vows belong to both administrations of the covenant, all of these things are done either in the old or in the new in Christ. That is, these essentials are identical in both administrations, we may freely take directions and examples of the ordinance in both testaments for our present instruction. Now that leads us to really the body that we'll take up this evening. And that is, what is the obligation that is attached to these covenants? This is something that we looked at before, but I think it's important now as we come to covenant renewal itself to take it a a briefer, but no less thorough look at it here. If you have your copy of the covenants, you'll notice here the first paragraph under section 3, under that section that reads covenant commitment. The covenant reads thus. As we enter the covenant with the Lord, we recognize that all these duties are required of every Christian by virtue of the covenant of grace. And that we do not bind ourselves to anything additional to that which is required in the Word of God. But we additionally bind ourselves to that which is already our duty. Now, I want to call your attention just briefly to what that, what the, the last two lines there, how they read. We do not bind ourselves to anything additional, but we additionally bind ourselves. Friend, that's language that pervades the history of the church, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and rightfully so. The idea is that these covenants do not create new duties. 
They don't establish new ethical codes. All they are doing is they are acquiescing in duties already given by God. Already things that are grounded in the moral law of God that is unchangeable. But note what it says further. But we do additionally bind ourselves. And so we're not creating new duties, but there is a sense in which there is a renewed obligation that is attached to us as we engage in this covenant. And you see this throughout Numbers 30. I'll just read verse 2 to you. But if you peruse Numbers 30 in the chapter in its entirety, you'll see how the Lord deals with this. He says in the second verse of Numbers 30, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeded out of his mouth. Now, of course, friend, what the Lord here is saying is that if it's an unjust law, of course it's not binding. But in the case where the duty is perfectly legitimate, that it is a duty that is derived from the law of God, there is a sense in which the man is now bound by the oath that he has taken. There is an additional obligation that is assigned to the man because he is bound. I want to read to you, it's a lengthy paragraph, but I think it's instructive. You see, the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland in 1806 was dealing with this problem. They were facing an, an, an onslaught, really, of opposition to this practice of covenant renewal. And so the Church of Scotland created what was really a term, the, the explanation and a defense of the terms of communion. And know what they say here with regard to this point of covenant obligation. It begins by asking the question, in what sense can they be said, as they are in our testimony, these covenants, to be of divine authority or obligation? We reply, the divine authority of heaven's great sovereign is evidently interposed in requiring us to enter into such covenants. Vow the Lord your God. And when once we have entered into them, the same divine authority binds us to performance. Pay that which thou hast found. As to these, that the great and dreadful name, the Lord our God, is invoked in the solemn transaction, while his declarative glory among men is deeply concerned in the faithful fulfillment of our engagements. So that, besides the intrinsic obligation of the covenants, viewed simply as human deeds, whereby men bind their souls, there is in all such covenants an obligation of divine authority, requiring, now note this, requiring first to make and then to perform our covenants. From the invocation of the divine name, considering Jehovah as witness and avenger, and from the interfering with the divine glory, in the keeping or violating of our oath. Hence in the scripture the same oath is, in one respect, considered as the covenant of the man giving his hand, and in another respect as the Lord's covenant, whose glory is concerned in it. And there the, the writers there quote Ezekiel 17 verses 18. And 19. The point that the quote is really getting at is that there is an obligation to enter into this covenant, that is, entering into it through Christ, through the covenant of grace. And so, of course, that obligation is there from God. But then once we have engaged in that covenant, once we have, once we have vowed unto the Lord, there is that additional obligation that we pay what we have vowed, even according to the vow that we've made. Now, if that's a covenant of itself, we do need to ask the question, of course, is it only additional? Is that the only aspect that we can think of the obligation that derives from these covenants? And the answer, of course, is no. Not only are they additional, but in many cases they are also a perpetual obligation. Now, if you do have your copy of the covenants with you, I've given you a glossary of sorts as an insert. 
You'll notice in that glossary, as you come five terms down, you'll see the words descending obligation. This is the moment where we encounter that particular idea. Descending obligation or perpetual obligation, we understand to be this. They are moral duties expressed in a past covenant which bind a society through successive generations. As long as the society exists and the covenant's aims remain unfulfilled. That is descending obligation in a nutshell. Now, friends, as you look at this, there are a couple of basic reasons why we can say this. First of all, as we go back to our very first lecture when we thought about corporate moral identity, remember what we said there. There are aspects of a body that continue through successive generations. And for the sake of time, I won't revisit all of them, but allow me to read to you just one quote. Here you'll find, as we looked at the case of Joseph and the children of Israel, he writes this. Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. God will visit you. He's speaking there to his brethren. But then take Exodus 13. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away, with, away hence with you. Centuries have gone by. From the moment that Joseph makes that covenant with the people of Israel. And yet, when the Exodus takes place, Moses sees it, and this is Exodus 13, 19, that is still an obligation, generations removed, that is joined upon the self-same body to be fulfilled. As one philosopher in the 18th century put it, natural bodies continue the same through length of time. That is, our bodies, physical bodies ourselves, by slow and silent degrees, they receive a considerable alteration from the various accessions and desertions of their particles. So, by the particular succession of individuals, the identity of the compound or corporate person is not diminished or obliterated, unless at one and the same time such a change would entirely take away the nature and constitution of that united body. The idea is, is that generations, as they change, do not actually change fundamentally the constitution of the corporate person. And so we should expect then that if there is a, if there is perpetual aspects of the covenant that are taken by a corporate moral person, then we should expect that those things will be continually binding upon that body so long as that body exists, regardless of which generation it finds itself in. We'll come back to that in a moment, but allow me to show this to you scripturally. I think one of the most powerful examples of this, and this has really become the locus classicus, the the kind of commonplace that everybody turns to to see this doctrine, is in the case of Israel and the Gideonites. And I, I want to read the texts to you uh, just briefly, and then make a few comments afterward. So here's the context. I'm reading here from the book of Joshua. And the men took of their victuals, that is the Gideonites, and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them, and it came to pass, at the end of three days after they had made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they dwelt among them. Once the children of Israel hear that the Gibeonites have come to Israel and really fold them into making this league, the children of Israel become quite agitated. And they'd say, of course, these are our cities. God had given us the cities of the Gibeonites to our, for our inheritance, and the princes of Israel said, we cannot invade. Why could they not invade? Well, the princes tell us. We have sworn unto them, that is the Gibeonites, by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. 
This we will do to them. We will even let them live. Lest wrath be upon us. Because of the oath which we swear unto them. And so you see how the princes of Israel are looking at the oath they made with the Gibeonites. They've sworn in the name of God. And they've said, because we have done so, we cannot violate the oath. Now the question, of course, is, was that right? Had the princes rightly interpreted the situation? Fast forward, if you would, to 2 Samuel 21. There was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul, and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites, and said unto them, Sorry, and the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn unto them. And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and to Judah. Note, note how the Lord deals with this particular generation. There are so many things that are, are in this text. First of all, I want you to notice that as you look at this passage, you find here that this is a voluntary covenant that Israel has entered into. She has sworn religiously. She's sworn in the name of God because she must. But it was a voluntary covenant, like all covenants ought to be in the norm. And it was made with Israel. It was made with Israel as a corporate moral person. But as you look at this text, what you can't miss is, friend, from the moment of Joshua making that covenant to the point of its breaking under Saul, how many generations had passed? And then, even more than that, from the death of Saul to the reign of David, how many decades had gone by? And yet the Lord visits upon Israel this chastening rod because the covenant had been violated. In other words, friends, the Lord God treated this covenant as binding on successive generations. And what's striking is he treated it as binding even though the covenant was made before Israel was fully settled in the land, even though the covenant was made with different generations, and even though the covenant was made with Israel under different forms of political government. It was still binding because Israel as a corporate moral person, as a corporation, continued to exist. Now, as we close, I want to set before you then just some very basic examples in the scripture of covenant renewal. And so I, I could go throughout the scriptures and give you many, but I'll give you only three this evening as we come to a conclusion and anticipate entering into co- renewing covenant ourselves. I want to take you to Horeb for a moment. Hear what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 5. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even with us, who are all of us here alive this day. I want you to note before I read any further the emphasis. This covenant was made with us. With us. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount, in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Moses goes on to say, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord. For ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. Now friend, that seems quite simple. Moses is saying, I am speaking to you, Israel, 
who were there. Even you, you, not our fathers, you were there. You heard the voice of God. You were there at Sinai with the earthquake and with the thunder. You were there. The covenant God made was with you. The difficulty is is what you have in Numbers 26. Among these that were numbered was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priests numbered when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. And there was not left a man of them save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Do you see what Moses is doing? It's a striking thing. He was saying, you were there. In some sense, you, even you were there. And yet, as we look at this text, it is only after that 40-year period in which the Lord himself says, not one of that generation stood, but Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. What is Moses doing? He's saying that the covenant that was entered into, in some sense, was entered in with you, even though you were a different generation than that which was afforded. It's a very striking thing. But then I want you to notice how the renovation goes. How does this renewal take place? In Deuteronomy 29, the text reads thus, Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and into this oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day. He calls them to enter into covenant, and yet he says it's the Lord who's entering into covenant. But note what he says here. It is even with your little ones that this covenant is renewed. Now, perhaps we could say, well, it's only for that generation that stood there. He goes on to write verses 14 and 15 of Deuteronomy 29. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. The generations who physically could not be present, Moses says, even for them this covenant is renewed. I'll take you to another one, and that is the case of Joshua. Joshua is, of course, coming to the end of his life, Israel has been brought into the land of promise. And here's what Joshua says to the people. These are famous words, so often misunderstood, but so very famous. If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Ammonites in which land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, note that. He stands as a representative of his house and he makes covenant. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He binds his house here. I want you to notice this. He goes on to write. As he speaks with the people of Israel, they protest and they say, We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Joshua turns to them. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that ye have done good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Now note this, ye are witnesses against yourselves. 
that he had chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. This particular case shows us the idea of personal obligation. It's not just the case that God, Jehovah, the lawgiver, stands against those who sin against him. But know what Joshua tells the people. If you enter into this covenant, if you make this vow, you enlist yourself as a witness against yourself if you violate the covenant. There is that sense of superadded obligation that the covenant that we're renewing here alludes to. And then as you come to the end of that chapter, verse 25, you have these words. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Thirdly and finally, we close with this, is the covenant renewal that takes place under Josiah's Reformation. So of course here I'm thinking about 2 Kings 23. I'll read the text to you in its entirety and then make just a few brief comments. The king, that is Josiah, sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. Again, it's 2 Kings 23, the first three verses. What you have in this text is covenanting. Covenanting as individuals entering into the covenant of grace, but also covenanting as it is an act of corporate repentance. We can't miss this as we close. Why is it that we who stand in Christ in the covenant of grace would dare to make vows to be the Lord's? Why would we, like the church in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8, why would we pledge ourselves to be the Lord's? Well, friend, in part, the reason why we would do that is because it truly is an act of corporate repentance. We stand before the Lord, and publicly, before God and before the world, say that we would serve the Lord, not be under sin anymore, not be servants to the world, but our resolution in Christ is to be the Lord's. This is precisely the essence of the Reformation under Josiah, and naturally then covenanting flows out of all that you read there. It is an act of repentance. Now, beloved, we'll close there um, as we will be taking up this theme in the, in the course of corporate worship this evening. But I want to close with just one further thought. We are entering into covenant, not because we are making a new covenant with God. As we said before, this is in a sense really renewing the covenant of grace. We're recognizing that God does require his people to be a willing people to give his power. The Lord himself tells us that we are to be a people who are quite willing to be the Lord's. We'll testify to our love for him through our obedience. But what we can't miss either, friend, that this is not covenant It can't be covenanting unless the Lord himself is the first mover. Unless the Lord himself, first of all, offers to enter into covenant with those who would seek him in Christ. 
Friend, we'd be making vows to no point because we would have no power to fulfill it in ourselves. We would have no right to do so. What covenant renewal is, then, is simply a solemn recognition that through the Lord Jesus Christ, God has been pleased to make a covenant with poor sinners. And all that we're doing this evening, in the time ahead, is to acquiesce in that covenant of grace. And once again, pledge ourselves through Christ and through the influences of that grace to be the Lord's. And may the Lord help us to do that if we seek His face together this evening. Amen.